Hi everyone, this is Kristen and welcome to episode number five of the Eating Disorder Recovery Speakers podcast. Thank you so much for listening today and opening yourself up to inspiration and guidance from other people who are in recovery from or who have recovered from their eating disorders. Hi, everyone. Can you guess what I'm about to say next? I am so excited for today's interview. Over the past few years, one belief that I have really taken on is that the universe listens and it provides, and it's just a matter of us being able to step back and really listen to what the universe is saying and being open and receptive to the gifts that it's giving. An example of this in my life um, a few years ago was when I decided that I was going to leave a job that I did love, but I just knew my time was up with it and I was holding on to it probably longer than I should. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine and kind of for the first time voiced like, okay, this is going to happen. I'm going to leave. Um, a few days after that, I got offered a, a job to manage an apartment building. And then a few days after that, I got offered a job to be like a operations manager for my mentor's company. And then that same day, I got offered a job as an event planner at a retreat center in Costa Rica. So literally the moment that I finally created space in my life for something new, three things were just thrown my way. Another example of this is that as soon as I decided to do this podcast, one of my students happened to be chatting with me after my yoga class and told me that he runs a podcast and it's a mental health podcast for college students. And then he decided he would love to have me on. And if you want to listen to that, I did add it as a bonus episode. So you can find that on iTunes. Um, It's an interview that I did with a podcast called College Success Stories Podcast. So a third example of this synchronicity is how I was introduced to today's recovered speaker. When I decided that I was going to do this podcast, I not only didn't know about podcasting, but I honestly never even listened to podcasts. So I figured a good way to start was to start listening to podcasts. And specifically, I looked up podcasts that already were talking about eating disorder recovery. And two that I came across, um, one was called the Recovery the Recovery Warrior Show, and the other one was called Food Psych. And when I was looking at the Recovery Warrior Show, she has a lot of episodes. Like she's got over 120 episodes now. Um, I came across one, and it was an interview. And so since I was interested in doing interviews, um, I thought this would be a good one. And the other reason I chose it, and this is not even a joke, is because I love the number 22. And this was episode 122. So show 122 of the Recovery Warrior show was an interview with a woman named Christy Amadio. And Christy Amadio in her episode talks about being from New Zealand and not having access to treatment. And she also talks about how she's an eating disorder recovery coach and she founded a company called Recovered Living. And while I was listening to the episode, I was like, holy shit, one, this woman seems really real and down to earth and someone I would get along with because I'm not, I'm just not like your inspirational music. I mean, I'm just like, I'm raw and I'm kind of gritty and 
And I love that about myself. And she seemed really raw and down to earth and very real. So one, I loved that. Two, she was literally saying everything that I've been saying for years. So examples that I heard her say that I also have been saying are, one, that you can be fully recovered. Um, two, that she thinks that she has a better relationship with food and her body than a lot of people that have never had an eating disorder because of the amount of work that she's done. And three, that if she had it to do her life over, she would still have an eating disorder because she's so happy with where her life is now. And she learned a lot about herself because of having an eating disorder. So when I was looking for episodes to listen to for Food Psych, I saw that she was also interviewed there. And so I listened to that episode too. And again, I had the same thoughts about her. I love lists. I'm a very like organized person. And so I love lists and I have a running to-do list on my desktop screen and it's divided into two different sections. So one section is like things that have to be done right away. So like in the next day or two. And the other section is things that one day I would eventually like to get to. And so I had been listening to Christy Amadio on these other podcasts. I felt very drawn to her and what she was saying. And so I added her name to my to-do list of eventually someone that I would like to contact. Fast forward a few weeks to the release of my first episode. And after I released it, I got a text message from one of my clients. And I'm going to read it. This is what it said. Hi there. I just saw that you started a recovery podcast, and I have a friend who founded the Recovered Living Coaching after having to attempt to navigate recovery living in a country with no treatment support whatsoever, in parentheses, New Zealand. And I think she would be a phenomenal person to interview. If you'd ever like me to get in touch with her and ask her, she is one gem of a human. So I was so excited because I knew exactly who she was talking about, and I texted her back, and I was like, Christy Amadio? And she was like, yes, do you know her? And I was like, no, not really, but kind of because I've listened to her story a bunch of times on other people's podcasts. So my client texted her and she was like, of course, I would love to be on her podcast. Tell her to email me. And so the story doesn't even stop there with the synchronicity. So I email her and I tell her, like, I'm so excited that she um, was interested in being on my podcast. I tell her that I heard her on other podcasts. And, um, and I was just like, when are you able to record? And so she emailed me back and she was like, you know, I'm really busy, but I can always make time for things that are important. And this is really important to me. She said, I live in LA, but I'm in New Jersey at the moment doing a live-in. And I saw that you're a Jersey girl. Turns out for the past two months, she had been living 20 minutes from where I live in New Jersey. So let's recap. I listened to Christy on podcasts and am immediately drawn to her to the point of recommending the episodes that she's interviewed on to my other clients. One of my clients happens to know her. She is from New Zealand and Australia, but now lives in California, but is actually staying in New Jersey 20 minutes from my house where all, when all of this is happening. So we end up meeting, we have dinner together, and she's such an amazing person and she's really charismatic and magnetic. And again, like I just feel drawn to her and what she says and her story and what she does. So I'm really excited to introduce you to Christy. She's an eating disorder recovery coach and CEO of Recovered Living. She's a former elite athlete. She is resilient and motivating and funny and kind and gregarious. And Recovered Living provides practical online and face-to-face -face eating disorder recovery support services that are affordable, 
innovated and really individualized. In her story, Christy talks about her belief that it is possible to be recovered from an eating disorder, how she found support even though she was living in a town of 35 people in New Zealand, and how she came from that small town in New Zealand to live in the United States and now owns her own recovery coaching company in the United States and works with people worldwide. So everybody, here's Christy's story. You know, Kristen, I think a question you asked me that I thought was really interesting is why do I share my story? And I really thought about it. And growing up, I did a lot of speech and drama. And then I was an elite athlete. And a lot of my jobs have been about being in front of people. So I don't know if there's a part of me that likes being being in front of people or what it is. But there was a, a documentary that I watched in treatment. It's called Finding Joe. It came out in about 2011. And it's, it's a personal development video. And it's just full of amazing quotes. And one thing they talked about was being, um, I guess, the hero of your life and not the victim. And I guess I really relate with that. And I think I tell my story because when I was sick, I used to always gravitate towards people who'd become the hero and who'd overcome it. And I felt really inspired by them. And so I think I kind of thought to myself, if I can be, I want to be that inspiring person. And so I became the hero of of my own story and it's so much more empowering to me to be able to stand up and say, I conquered this or I I recovered rather than to be the victim and say, this happened to me and it messed up my life. Like if I took my life back and I could live it over, I would still go through having an eating disorder because of the benefits and the gifts I've got from it. So I think I do tell my story because I want other people to know that recovery is possible, but I also want them to have something hopefully to be inspired about or to gravitate to because I think the people that inspired me were so important in my recovery um, and I have so much gratitude for them. And when I think about who I was before my eating disorder, like I was this quiet kind of really lacked social confidence kind of person. Like I was definitely a determined person, but I was definitely a wallflower in social situations. And when I think of who I am now, I gregarious was the word that just came to mind then like I feel very comfortable in who I am as a person and I say that without any hesitation because I feel that to be true and I I think that's why I'm really grateful for having had an eating disorder because I've had to work through I had to work through my midlife midlife crisis in my 20s essentially and be comfortable in who I was so when I think about my eating disorder, it's like I grew up in Australia and the philosophy in Australia of eating disorders is that they don't really believe in full recovery. They very much believe about being in recovery and having to manage your symptoms. And so the way it was described to me, um, I was in hospital twice in Australia and they'd always describe it like, you know, the thoughts will always be there. You'll just have to push them away. And I spent probably a good 10 or so years after that thinking that I was actually kind of recovered, that that was what it was, was still having thoughts about my body and food and waking up every morning and being scared of what I would or wouldn't eat. But just thinking that because I wasn't in treatment that I must be recovered, like just because I was highly, just because I was high functioning. Um, And when I look back at that now, there's a part of me that does feel sad because I feel like 10 years of my life, I don't want to say wasted, but I did spend 10 years of my life living a lie or or living something that I didn't have to. Um, And so what happened is when I relapsed a third time really badly in New Zealand, they 
looked in the eye and said, you know, you're going to be chronic for the rest of your life and you need to expect this to be the pattern of your adult years. And for me at that time, things were bad enough that I didn't want to go on living like that because it didn't feel like living at all. And I was pretty clear that I couldn't continue doing what I was doing. It just didn't seem possible for me to do another month, let alone the rest of my life. So I looked up kind of treatment worldwide because I knew that in America people were were doing something right because there were books coming out about um, like Jenny Schaefer's Goodbye Ed, Hello Me and um, like Portia de, Rossi's, Portia de Rossi's book. And I was like, well, clearly they're recovering in America. So like they're doing something right there. And I just Googled eating disorder treatment in America. And I found this place called Montenito and I called them up and said, look, this is what I've been told. What do you think? And they said to me, well, we think you can recover and we think you should come to us. And that was the first time anyone had ever told me that I could recover. And it just kindled this, this tiny little, just it wasn't even a flame or a spark. It was just like a wisp of hope that just maybe there was like a 0.00001% chance that maybe maybe things could be a little bit better. I didn't even think I went hoping for recovered. I was just hoping that things could be better than they were. And I had this grand plan of going for six weeks. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do six weeks and then I'll be recovered. And after a week, I said to the clinical director at the time, I was like, this is going to take a little bit longer than six weeks, isn't it? And she was like, about six months, sweetheart. (laughs) So I had to really take a step back and realize that recovery wasn't a sprint, that it was really going to be a marathon. So I spent um, about seven months in treatment with Montenito and then got to return home back to New Zealand. And the, the gap between treatment and being at home was just massive. Like I can't even describe it. It's like being in a bubble and then coming outside the bubble. And what really kept me going to help bridge that gap was I worked online with a therapist. I had an online dietitian. I would Skype with my friends and we'd do meal support. And I think I was really committed because I was so inspired by the people I'd heard speak. They used to have alumni come back and speak every week and they just had this light in their eyes and this effervescence about life. And I was like, I want that. Like I'm, I'm inspired about them and I, I want to be like them as well. So I think that was what really kept me going was knowing that recovered was possible and that it wasn't just that I was going for this, this aim of pushing the thoughts back for the rest of my life, but I was really going for recovered. I think that that was what had lit the fire in me. Like I went there with this tiny wisp of hope, but I came home with this raging fire of I want recovered and I'll do whatever it takes to get there because anything less than recovered, I don't want it. Like I was very clear that if recovered was actually possible for me, then that was what I wanted. Like it wasn't a question. Um, it, it wasn't if, it was when. And I'm not too proud to say I worked my butt off for it. Like I really made recovery my full-time job. Like um, John Martini, he's worth looking up. He's this super intelligent guy in America um, but he talks about values a lot and he rather than uh, he talks about like you know if you have a list of values and it's like you know you want happiness or you want peace or whatever he really disagrees with that with just circling a value and saying this is what I want he really talks about if you want a value then you have to embody it and so uh, what his suggestion is to bring values into your life is to really surround yourself with them and so I would have like posters up on my wall and inspirational quotes I would listen to podcasts and YouTube clips I would research endlessly like the health at every size philosophy I would interview people I became a mentor 
I would talk about eating disorder recovery. I'd think of, you know, like whatever it was, like it was in my life 24 seven. Whereas I think when I was sick, my eating disorder was in my life 24 seven, you know, I would count calories and do the exercise and whatever, but I really just had to change from putting a hundred percent of my energy into my eating disorder to putting a hundred percent of my energy into my recovery. And I think that was the first time I'd ever, I guess, became obsessive about recovery and it paid off because yes, I definitely had slips and I had tough times and you know, there were definitely hard times, but I got there. And um, I would say to anyone that's looking to recover, like, yes, dip your toe in by all means and think, do I want this? But if you really want recovery, then you're going to have to go for it. Like no one gets to be an elite athlete by kind of just working out twice a week and, you know, playing at club level. Like you have to really immerse yourself in it to to get the thing that you want. I think the best advice ever given to me about recovery, you know, they had a saying at Montenito that the only people that don't get better are the ones that stop trying. And I really liked that because it really spoke, it spoke to everybody. It spoke to the first timers that were trying recovery and it spoke to the people that had been back to treatment 10, 15, 17 times. You know, it's like anyone can get better. We, you know, and they were really honest and saying, we don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know how many times you're going to fall over, but we do believe that anyone can get better. And I really liked that because it opened up the possibilities for me. My life now is so completely and unbelievably different to how I ever thought it would be. Like currently I live in Los Angeles and I have a company that works with people recovering from an eating disorder and there was nothing in my childhood or my adolescence that would ever suggest I would think of starting a company in a foreign country like that just wasn't on the cards Um, and it actually came about because I fell off a cliff and what happened is I was working for Outward Bound New Zealand as an outdoor instructor so I was teaching sailing, whitewater kayaking, rock climbing, that type of thing and really enjoying it, really loving again it was being in front of people but just loving being in the outdoors and living life and I was doing an adventure race with some teammates so we were like going through the bush or the the woods as they call them in America and we got to a bit of a bluff and we had a choice we could either like go left and there was this zigzaggy path which would get us down the road or we could go down the bluff which was like a lot faster but obviously you know had some inherent dangers in there and everyone was like yeah let's do the bluff and I had this real intuitive moment where it was like Christy don't do this and I was standing on the edge of the edge of the cliff and I'm not the fastest in the bush. Like people in LA think I'm very outdoorsy because I used to work for Outward Bound. But the truth is you put me in with all the Outward Bounders and I'm like the bumbly one, the one that falls over and um, the one that just doesn't always quite twig. Um, I still enjoy myself, but I'm standing on the edge of this cliff and my intuition's going, don't do it. And my teammates are climbing down and I just couldn't see a good place for me to climb down. And um, I was doing everything wrong standing on the edge, holding onto a dead tree branch. And my teammate said, Christy, are you okay? And I said, I don't think so. And as I said, think, the edge of the cliff crumbled, the branch I was holding onto broke, and I went straight down this cliff. And I landed on my feet, which I was pretty proud of. I was in running shoes, and I landed on some pretty, like, hard, pointy rocks. And I landed on my heels, and those rocks kind of drove straight through my feet. Um, It was one of the more painful things I've done in my life. And went to hospital, they x-rayed my feet, they said, you're fine, they x-rayed my back, they said, you don't have a spinal fracture, you're good. Um, But like the next day, I was like, I need crutches. So I went back and got crutches. 
I was on crutches for a couple of weeks and I was like, this doesn't feel right. You know, they said to me my feet were okay, but clearly they're not because I can't wait there. And so I went back and got an ultrasound and then an MRI. And what had happened is you've actually got fat pads on the bottom of your feet. And fat pads are kind of like little water balloons. And I think it's very ironic that they're called fat pads. Um, they're like little water balloons. And essentially what I'd done is jumped off a cliff onto these water balloons and ruptured them. And so they said if it was just a small tear that those fat pads would fill back up with like the, the jelly fluid that they needed to because that's what protects your bones um, when they hit the pavement. And so they were pretty much like, well, you know, stay off your feet, wait a year. So work was really great to me. I just taught a lot of sailing that year, um, spent as much time as I could sitting down and which I never would have been able to do on my eating disorder, by the way. And then it was like, it was such the, um, the paradox of, you know, I recover and then all of a sudden I'm forced to sit down, but it was fine. It was just like, okay. And after a year, my feet unfortunately didn't recover. And so um, even today, I really struggle to stand up for more than kind of half an hour. Um, I just have a lot of pain in my feet. And so it essentially came down to the fact that my career in the outdoors was over and I had to find something that I could do sitting down and I was like wow um all right career change and it was like well first criteria it has to be sitting down and I, I know that people are important to me I'm such a people person um had to be sitting down had to be with people and I was like well I can eat food now and um I was a therapist in Australia and New Zealand so I definitely had that background but I didn't want to go back to just general therapy I think I have such a drive now for helping people recover from eating disorders and more specifically I mean I'll help anyone but I think the part that I really love is helping people who are at that 90% where they're like almost there but there's still 10% of the eating disorder and I'm all about weeding out the 10% because the 10% is what gets people 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the track you know when they're 50 years old and suddenly their kids leave home and they turn to an eating disorder because there's always been that thought in the back of their mind about the calories they're eating or about their body or whatever it is. And I'm definitely about let's go for a hundred percent recovery. So um, after the cliff incident, it's kind of crazy how sometimes the worst thing in life can, can become the best thing in life. And I put my effort, I just had this vision of starting a company that could, that could really reach anybody anywhere. And I think it was based on my own recovery and that a lot of my recovery was online when I got home. And so now I work online with people. I go into people's homes and stay with them if they need me to. And, you know, I've had clients in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America, England, like everywhere. And I just, I, I love, love, love that I'm able to reach people who are outside the big cities and perhaps don't have access to the kind of support that they, they need and deserve. So for me, recovered living is a, an expression of, it's an expression of hope, but also I want people to know that they that that I get it as well. You know, I think all my coaches they're recovered, and so whoever works with us is is working with someone who's been there themselves, and I think that's super important because that was important for me in my recovery. That's Christy's story. If it resonated with you, or if you think the concept of this podcast is a good one, please help other people find it more easily by rating it on iTunes, maybe leaving a comment, or sharing it with other people who might also find it helpful.
In the interview part of this podcast, Christy and I talk about how to think outside of the box when trying to find resources and support for your eating disorder recovery. We talk about body image. We give some tips and advice for the loved ones of someone who's struggling with an eating disorder. And we also talk about forming a new relationship with exercise. Here is the interview. Hi, Christy. Thank you so much for telling your story. I'm really happy to be have you on my podcast after listening to you on other people's podcasts a few times. The first question I have for you is one thing that really resonated the first time I heard you on another podcast was that you also have this belief that you can be recovered from an eating disorder and not just in recovery for the rest of your life, which is something that I also believe. And so I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on what it means for you to be recovered, why you think being recovered is possible, and um, like one of the reasons you tell your story to show people that being recovered is possible. Mm-hmm. Such good questions. Um, for me, like being recovered is I really just contrast how my life was in my eating disorder and how things are now. And I think the biggest, I mean, there's so many big things, but I mean, the glaringly obvious one is, you know, it's an eating disorder. So if I look at food, like my goodness, when I think about how it used to be is I'd wake up in the morning and my first, you know, my first thing would be to body check. And then it would be to think about like how many calories I ate yesterday and what was happening today and what would I eat? What wouldn't I eat? How could, what could I have to do in social situations to avoid this? When could I exercise? And it was like this full-time job in my head all around the food I was or wasn't going to eat. And if I did eat something, it meant that then I had to do some counter action. So if I ate this, then I couldn't eat that, that. Or if I ate this, then I had to exercise. And everything was like, I was like the world's most obsessed accountant. Um, when I think of when I wake up today, I generally wake up and like probably wiggle my toes and, you know, get out of bed and, I don't know, wander out into the sunshine, grab breakfast. You know, it's like that's how much thought goes into food these days is I feel like, like food's just a thing. I think about it, you know, as much as I think about like brushing my teeth or whatever. It's just, it's just a thing that I do. Um, but there's no negative connotations put to it. And I think a part of that is too just the trust in my body. Like I have such absolute trust that I can eat whatever I like and I'm going to be okay. And I think I remember in treatment really struggling with that concept because I used to think, well, if I eat what I like, then I'm just never going to stop eating. And yes, there's a period for sure when, you know, I open the floodgates to, okay, there's no good or bad foods. I can eat whatever I like. When my body was like, oh, she's eating now. Like, you know, let's capitalize on this. But there's a point too where when I started to give my body what it wanted, then it didn't want anymore. It's almost like air. If you've been underwater for a long time, the first thing you want when you come out of the water is air. But once, you st- once you've taken a couple of deep breaths and you start breathing normally again, then you stop thinking about air and you turn to your friend and you're like, oh my goodness, did you see that? Like, you know, and then you go on to other important things. And so I think with recovery, it was like that. You know, food was 24-7 in my head. And as a recovered person, it's just not. It really isn't. It's like, I don't have, I, I feel like it's hard to explain unless you've been there as to the juxtaposition of the, the two things. Yeah, that's so interesting because I was I actually got coffee with a friend of mine yesterday who's um, a therapist that specializes in eating disorder recovery. And that's exactly what she was saying. She was like, you know, when people start recovering, they get so freaked out because they're like, all they do is think about food and they start to think mm-hmm. that that's all they're ever going to think about. And she was like, it's 
the reason you're doing that, it's like an evolutionary thing. Your body's like, hi, I'm starving and I really need that. I need food. And so all you do is think about it because it's it's just your body needs it because you're dying and you're starving. And But then once you actually start giving yourself it, it's like your body is no longer always calling your attention to it because it's not, it just like knows that you're going to eat and it's not, exactly. it's not in the forefront. So like you said, it's like you're drowning and all you're like, I need air, I need air, I need air, I need air. And you finally go up, you take a huge gasp of air and it's like, you don't think about breathing anymore. Totally. 100%. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. what she was saying. And so I think that's so true in terms of, being recovered. I remember that being my experience as well as this like fear that once I started eating, I was never going to stop gaining weight. And that that's just, it's not a reality of what happens. And part of that is like you just said, is this trust in your body that like, I just feel like I trust my body now. Yoga helped me with that, but you know, starting to just trust that like when my body's settled, it's settled and I'm not going to have to be so concerned about it anymore. Um, and I think like another piece, and, and you can speak to this a little bit about being recovered versus being in recovery is this whole idea of like body image. And so I'm curious about how like your body image has changed over time from like when you were really sick and in treatment versus like where you are now and today. Yeah, it's a good question. I think I've got two answers to that actually. And I guess I just wanted to speak a little to that piece of trusting your body because I remember like in treatment, like they just keep hammering you with that trust your body, trust us, you know, it's going to be okay. But like, how long does it actually take to trust your body? And, you know, I was in treatment in America for like seven months and then I went home. So it's like I had seven months of not knowing my weight, of someone else looking after it, of being in a bubble. And then when I went back home, I was living in a very small town. There were just 35 people there and I actually lived at work. And, um, you know, the nearest doctor's office is a, it was a good hike to get there. And so it wasn't feasible to just duck out each week and get weighed by my doctor. Um, and so we actually had an agreement at work that um, one of the managers at work, they knew that I was in recovery and they agreed to weigh me. Um, and so we started off weighing weekly and then we went to once every two weeks and then it was once a month. And then like after a year, I think of being home, I was probably just getting them to weigh me when I would freak out. And like, I might have like a couple of days where I'd be like, I feel like I've gained weight. I've definitely gained weight. My clothes are tighter. I'm positive I've gained weight. And then if I couldn't talk myself down within a day or two, I'd go to my manager and be like, hey, can you weigh me? And what they'd do is they'd weigh me and then they'd send that weight to um, the treatment center in America. And then they'd write back and be like, tell her she's fine. She's in maintenance. And then my manager would be like, you're fine. And I'd be like, okay, that was clearly just my head. And, you know, I did that for a long time. And so I think when people say, how long does it take you to trust your body? I think everybody's different, but just to highlight that, you know, it was probably a good two years that I was, that I, you know, and I still don't know what I weigh today, but it was a good two years where someone else was weighing me and reassuring me and going, you're okay. Um, and it did take that long to trust my body. Um, in terms of body image, I think I could talk about body image for days, Um, but for me, when I reflect back on my life in my eating disorder and even growing up, like I was an elite athlete. And so very much it was, you know, fit is the new fit was like the thing to be and, you know, having muscles and in my head, like if, if weight or, you know, the word fat was bad then that meant any weight or any fat was bad. And so not only did I find that I was judging my own body, but I also would project that out on other people. And I used to admire people if they had like the fit toned body and I'd be like, oh, that's the body I want. Whereas now as a recovered person, the people that I admire and are drawn to are the people that are at home in their own skin. 
like, and it doesn't matter what type of body they have. It's the people that are comfortable. And I'm like, oh, that's attractive. And so to me, what used to be attractive isn't anymore. I mean, you can totally have a fit tone person that's at home in their skin and that's great. But if there's someone in a different body and they're comfortable with themselves, then I find that even more attractive because I'm just like, this is great that they, that they just truly love who they are and they're not, they're not folding to this cultural bias that I feel is happening at the minute that's out there about this fitness craze that's going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I think it's um, a really good segue into another question that I wanted to talk about is you had mentioned the organization Health at Every Size, which Mm -hmm. is um, something that I'm just newly starting to hear about and learn about. But from what I know about it, I really like. And, you know, the little bit that I know about it is kind of like where there's like a like a weight bias in the medical field and that you can be in any body and be healthy and that like the size of your body is not an indicator of what your health is. And um, I'm, I'm wondering like what you know about the organization, um, what you love about it and, you know, anything else you might have for people that maybe have never heard about it before, but I've sent some of my clients to the website cause they've got such a good list of resources. Um, mm-hmm. So if there's anybody that is listening, that's maybe kind of heard about it or hasn't yet, what do you know about health at every size and what do you like about it? Yeah, I think health at every size is close to my heart because it's the very first thing that made me start to change, I guess, my view on my own body and on, and on other people's body as well. It was the very first book and I'd been brought up to believe, you know, calories in, calories out. If you want to lose weight, you know, it's just eat less and exercise more. Like that was just the stock standard thing growing up in the 80s and 90s. And health at every size, it's a brilliant book. And so it's called Health at Every Size, The Surprising Truth About Your Weight. Sorry, I'm looking at it in my bookshelf right now. And um, what it does is it goes into the physiology of weight, like both weight gain and weight loss and even set point weight. And it really just debunks the diet myth by like, once you read it, you'll feel like a scientist. I remember reading it being like, get out. Like, why doesn't the rest of the world know this stuff? Like, I was like, but but I've always been brought up to believe this and it was fascinating. And, and even the reasons why this stuff isn't traditionally thrown about in the media, like, you know, there's not so much conspiracy theories, but you know, there's so many reasons why the traditional diet mentality works, like from a marketing perspective, from a financial, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, once I was a little more educated, I was like, wow. And even something, um, I think one of the dietitians was helping me understand because I was like, but it is this way. You, you just really, if you just eat less and you exercise more, you will lose weight. Like I was so like bent on it. And she's like, you know what, Christy? She's like, if you took 2000 people at birth from all different cultures all over the world and you kept them in like a compound and you fed them the same thing, the exact same thing, all of them, and you gave them the exact same amount of exercise, you know, all appropriate. She's like, when they're 20 or 30, they would all be different body sizes and shapes. And I was like, no and she's like yeah and I'm like but how and she's like well you know there's genetics and there's metabolism and there's the hormones in your body and you know blah, blah, blah. and I was just like like my mind was just blown and so it went from this belief that I had growing up to like actually once I was a little more educated I could actually let go of my challenges with my body even more because it was like oh it's not my like I used to think that it was my fault that my body was this way and then I realized actually you know what like my body is this shape and size because it's meant to be this shape and size. And so for me, knowledge was power. And I studied, I read, there's also some excellent books out there called The Obesity Paradox and also The Obesity Myth. And they're just as great at 
as health at every size because they again go into the science and they do it in a way that's understandable they go into the science of it and so knowledge is power it's like once I realized that this is a scientific fact in the same way like gravity works you know this is kind of how your body work um, it really helped me start to be okay do you think that um your main I guess it's not really a coping mechanism, but like, how did you start to come across or come upon like being able to accept just like the, where your body naturally lied? Does that make sense? Like, was it knowledge is power or were there, cause I know for me, like yoga helped me a lot. Cause there's some poses that I can just do easily. And there's some poses that like, I think I'll work really hard at just never be able to do them. And it's because of like my skeletal structure and just like certain things. And so yoga helped me really accept my body strengths and its limitations and like the way that I'm just born and like what I'm capable of and, and all of that. And so I'm wondering, was it like just knowledge and just knowing that this is just genetics and this is how you are and then that's perfect? Or was there any other kind of coping mechanisms or things that you did to help you accept like this is, this is my body and it's perfect and it's amazing and there's strengths and there's limitations and all of that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, for me, knowledge was probably the number one thing and the other thing would be was doing stuff that would get me out of my head and so for me like I love whitewater kayaking I love horse riding um I love like I don't know if you know the game banana grams like scrabble you know I love that stuff and I'm a very competitive person so if I could do stuff that I love doing um and got me out of my head it made me feel okay with my body because it was like it doesn't matter what size or shape my body is. It matters that I'm, that I'm living, you know, that I'm living a life and I'm not just existing. And so doing things that made, made my soul happy was really important because it got me to focus on what isn't, what, you know, what really is important in life. Whereas your eating disorder will have you focusing on that your body is the most important thing. But, you know, people don't like me for my body. I've never had a single friend say, Christy, I'm friends with you because of your body. You know, they say to me things like, Christy, I'm friends with you you know, because I love you, because you're fun to hang out with, because um, whatever, you know. And so I think taking the power back from the eating disorder and saying, no, I'm going to decide what's important in my life. Yeah. One thing I love that you just said is this difference between like living versus existing. And so Mm -hmm. I want you to say more about like, what does living mean versus like just existing? Oh my goodness. That's a big question. I know. Um, (laughs) For me, it's like, I just feel so on purpose. I feel like I know who I am. I like who I am. I know where I'm going. I like where I'm going. Um, I wake up in the morning and I feel energized. And sometimes I get so excited about life. I don't want to go to sleep at night. Like sometimes I'll be like, oh, I'm just going to read this or I'm just going to finish changing this part of my website. And sometimes it's hard for me to go to sleep because I'm just so excited about life. And I know what it's like to exist and to feel like living one more hour in this body, in this brain, in this life is torturous. You know, I've been in both places. And for me, existing is almost like if that's going on, whether you have an eating disorder or not, like this existence feeling, it's almost like what's that, what's that trying to tell me? What's that, what's that asking of you? And I think for me, it was saying to me, like, wake up, like you're feeling this way because you're not paying attention 
to the stuff that fills your heart and soul, like wake up and pay attention to what is important. And for me, existing was a call to, to claim myself. And I had the choice to listen or to not. And thank goodness I chose to listen. Um, you know, it wasn't easy. It's probably the hardest work I'll ever do in my life, but it's, it's the thing that I'm proudest of. And it's the thing that I'll defend most fiercely is my right to, to do what fills my soul. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that, that one thing you just said too, about like, it's like the call to live. And I don't know if that's the exact words that you use, but like feeling like just existing was your wake up call to be like, I can actually fully live. And it goes back. I don't know, like, I don't know if there's like a proper quote, but the whole idea of like, you only know lightness because you know what darkness is, right? And like having to yeah. be able to like experience the both ends of all of the feeling spectrums. Like you know love because you kind of know hate and you know happiness because you know sadness. And when you were telling your story, like one thing you said was you you don't regret having your eating disorder. And if you were gonna go back and do it again, you would have it again. And I often feel the same way, like to the dismay of my mother. She's like, you would, are you kidding? And I'm like, but I actually, <laughs> I actually would because like, because I love so much where I am now and I know I wouldn't be where I am now had I not gone through that. And, um, mm -hmm. and so this idea of like, there is this call to live this amazing life and this might like living versus existing is, you know what living feels like because you also know what it was like to be a shell of a human being. Yeah. And I want to say with that too, it's like, it doesn't mean that my life now is all like unicorns and rainbows. Right. Like, you know, I still have relationships and get broken up with and, I, you know, been in a car, you know, stuff still happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, life still happens, but, um, but I'm okay. And I think that's the bottom line. It's like with or without, like whatever life presents me, I know I'm going to be okay. Like mm -hmm. I, and I truly mean that. Like, I feel like, you know, and hope they don't happen, but you know, let's say they did and a meteorite was to hit my family and, you know, I was to go bankrupt or whatever. It's like, I still know I'd be okay. And I think in my eating disorder, I was just so terrified of life itself. It was like, I was so, you know, I had an eating disorder, but also had an eating disorder when it came to money, you know, I was so mm -hmm. like restrictive and would hold on to it because I was so fearful and restrictive in life. I was too scared to go outside the box. Whereas now I'm just like, yeah, you know, I will move to another country and start a business, you know, and because, because I will be okay, whether mm -hmm. it works or not, I'll still be okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the gift I've gotten from recovery, kind of like how you were saying, like, you're so stoked on where you're at at the minute because of having to recover. I feel the same. I'm like, because of this, I've gotten to, to this. And yeah, is, is life perfect all the time? No, but I wouldn't want it to be. But I have all the ups and downs. And in that, in that hurricane, I'm at the center and I'm standing strong. And, and I'll always be at the center standing strong. What are some things you do now or things that help you now when like life does happen? So like when you do get broken up with or you do get like the flu or like something sad happens in your life, is there anything specific that you know like this, this helps me now when life happens? Totally. Yeah, people, people, and people. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I think the big thing they taught in treatment was reach out to people rather than your eating disorder. And, you know, I don't have an eating disorder anymore, but it's like, you know, when I get broken up with, like my old thought would have been like, oh, let's not eat for a week. Whereas now my thought is, oh, let's call my friend, you know, and talk about it. Um, or self-care. Let's, you know, let's have a shower or just like hang out in bed for a day and read a book. Like it's, it's okay to have that and really just honor my soul, I think that's super important, but definitely, I mean, reaching out for me was huge. 
What are some things you do for self-care? Like if someone's like, I love the idea of self-care, but I just, I remember like people would say things like that to me and probably part of it was because I just like wasn't feeding my body, but I could, my mind would go blank. Like, I just don't even know what to do. Like, what are some things that someone can do that means like self-care to you? Mm-hmm. Um, take a shower or like what else? Well, where I, where I live at the moment, we have this awesome house and out the back, we call it the breakfast club area. And it's just like <laughs> these couches that are set out in the sun. And I'm lucky because I live in LA. So it's often sunny. So like, you know, I go out and have breakfast with my housemates or if they're at work or whatever, I'll have breakfast by myself, but like sit in the sun, you know, go outside to mm-hmm. me. Outdoors just brings me alive. Um, doing stuff I love. Like I really enjoy trapeze and so I'm back in LA at the minute so I'm going to sign back up for trapeze classes like it's fun Mm -hmm. um I like reading you know and it's something that I've realized the past few months I've been working pretty hard and I hadn't been reading and so I picked up I've read like two books in the last couple of days because I've just been like oh yeah I like this Mm -hmm. um yeah doing stuff I enjoy to me that's self-care some of the things and I'm just going to list off some of the things I do too just so that people have like a Mm -hmm. bigger list of things like I something that I love is like like good smells. So for me, like lighting candles that smell really good or like essential oils that smell every good, really good. So like that to me is self-care or I love, um, I love coffee. Like I'm just, I don't like love coffee because it gives me energy. I love coffee because I love how it smells and I love how it tastes. So like I have like a special kind of coffee. That's like my favorite that I keep and I drink when like I'm having a shitty day. I'm like, this is like my special coffee that I, I take out when I, when I like need it. Um, I like soft things. So like really soft blankets and I don't live in LA. And so like right now in New Jersey, it's freaking cold. So like, these are all things you can do inside when you can't go out in the sun, but it's like good smelling candle, soft blankets, like your favorite warm beverage. Um, I love my cat, like letting my cat just like sit and purr on me. Um, you know, self-care is like all these like small little things that feel so big. Yes, 100%. So let's, I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit. And one thing that I've gotten this question a few times, and I've also asked it to a few of the other people that I've, I've interviewed is you had said um, when, so you're from New Zealand and you moved to Australia or you're from Australia and you moved to New Zealand. Uh, it's a little complex. I was actually born in England. Okay. Um, and then I moved to Australia, but my parents are from New Zealand. So I don't honestly know what that means, except that I just <laughs> belong in a lot of places. Right. So I guess a better question for me then is when you were saying you were trying to find treatment and they didn't have it, it was both New Zealand and Australia, you felt like didn't yes. really have a, so you were saying you did a bunch of stuff online and you would do like Skype therapy and you would do like meal support with people over Skype. And so a question that I've gotten is, what do you do when you feel like you don't have resources? And, and a, a lot of times what I say is you just have to kind of like think outside of the box. Like there are things yes. you just have to, it might not mean driving to a therapist's office and sitting there. And um, I live in an area where there are a lot of those kinds of resources. Like it's a very populated suburban right, right. outside of New York City area. But for mm-hmm. you, like what were some things that you did either like before Montenito or after Montenito as ways of getting help when you didn't feel like there were resources available for you to just like get in a car and drive to. Yeah. And I just want to give like a visual picture of where I lived in New Zealand. So tiny town, um, 35 people and the nearest like proper town was an hour's drive away. And the nearest eating disorder therapist was six hours drive away. So that gives you a picture of like how 
um, remote or how, how far away from like good eating disorder support I was. Like I was quite a ways. So like prior to going to America, like I think I did all the traditional things. Like, um, you know, I did drive to see a therapist and I was working, I think at that point with a dietitian in Australia just by telephone. Um, so I tried my best, but it, I mean, it just wasn't enough. I was at a point where I did need residential treatment. Um, but when I came back and I really like Kristen, how you say, like, think outside the box, I think I was just like, right, this isn't ideal, but I'm going to make it work. And so I found an incredible therapist in New Zealand that I worked online with, um, you know, for a couple of years and I never actually met her until I flew out to LA to live like on my way to LA I was like I specifically flew up to Auckland to meet her I was like I can't leave this country without meeting the person that I've been working with for so many years um and I did find a dietitian in America that was willing to work with me online um and I think there's as much as there's a desert for resources like physically I think the internet is such a brilliant place because there is so much out there. Like you can find a therapist. You can find, if you can't find a, sorry, you can find a dietitian. And if you can't find a therapist because of like the licensing laws or whatever, um, find a coach, you know, find a coach who will work with you. And there are brilliant podcasts out there. Like I've got a list of podcasts on my website. There's so many great podcasts. There are online groups now. Um, I have online groups on my website. There's also point you to other online groups. There's uh, YouTube clips. There's podcasts. There's books out there. There's people who just, there's the, there's the health at every size community. Like as much as it's a desert, if you look in the right places, you'll find what you need. You just have to, you have to really, I guess it's almost like how I said it about recovery. Like if you really want it, you'll find it. So I would say search. If you search and you can't find anything, ask, you know, like, email me. I'm just going to put you out there. Email Kristen and just be like, hi, what resources do you know of? Like on my website, I have a whole resources page, which is dedicated to podcasts, um, music. Um, what else have I got? Books, you know, all those types of things. So they're out there. You just need to really search. And if like, you can't, like you said, if you can't find something like even just Facebook, like go to a Facebook room and be like, hi, yeah. where do you guys use? And like, what do you guys use? Cause there Absolutely. is, there's so, there's so much. And that's like, there's some things I hate about the internet, but like, this is one thing that's amazing about the internet is like, it doesn't matter where you live, you can get help. It's just that you just have to find it. Yeah. And I think, I think the thing that really helped me, real, helped me realize that was one day I was having a really tough time in recovery and my New Zealand therapist said to me, she's like, you know, Christy, I just want to let you know that you're doing it tough right now, but this is the toughest you're ever going to do it. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you know, you're not going to live in this town forever. Like, wherever you go next, you're going to be, there's going to be more people. And I was like, actually, I'm thinking of taking a job in Antarctica. And um, we both laughed and I was like, but it's okay because nothing will change. And we both kind of stopped and we were like, yeah, because it's like my therapist would still be there. My nutritionist would still be there. My friends right. would still be there because they were all on my laptop. And that was when I really was like, oh my goodness, like recovery is possible wherever you are. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. because it can all be done by the internet, like, is it ideal? No. Does it work? Yes. Right. It's such a good sentiment too, because it really is. It's like not only is recovery possible, but I think a lot of times it's the whole like, if not now, when thing, like people are like, well, I'll recover when I'm living somewhere where there's more resources. I'll recover when I've got more people in my life that are also recovered. And it's like, no, if it was actually you, I think that said this to me, I don't know if we were on the phone or if it's when we were out, um, went out to dinner when you were like, if you're ready to recover, you'll recover in a cave. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. So it's just like it's not like if this and if that. There's never there's never an ideal time. Like I mean, it's always the right time, and it's always going to feel like maybe it's not the best time. Do you know what I mean? Like exactly. I remember like what, often like oh you go. I was gonna say I remember when I was inpatient and I was like oh man it sucks to be in residential and having to leave college. But then there was like yeah but it also sucks to have to leave high school. And someone was like well I'm a mother and it sucks to be in residential. Like <laughs> there's really like never the opportune, it's always going to, it's always going to like a kind of interrupt life the way it was, but it's also like, how good is life the way it was? And, and it's like, it's not the, it's if not now and when, it's like, when are you ready to actually find it and like make it happen for yourself? And what does that look like? Absolutely. And I hear that so often like, well, maybe I'll go to treatment, you know, in the summer holidays or maybe I'll go once this has happened, it's like, go now. Like why, why wait another second? Right. Just, just put do off it. the life that's waiting for you. Mm-hmm. It's like, just do it now. Cause it's never going to be, it's never going to seem easy, but it's also going to make the rest of your life so much easier. Mm-hmm. And quite often people are like, well, which is the right treatment center for me? Should I go here or should I go there? And I think that's why I say when you're ready to recover, you can recover in a cave. Right. I mean, you know, I've seen plenty of people who needed to go to treatment, never had the opportunity to go to treatment and they recovered today because, yeah. because the only people that don't recover are the ones that, that stopped trying and these people kept trying. So yes, they did the long road without, without residential treatment, but they did it. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes people go to treatment and they're not ready or whatever. And maybe then you might need, you know, this treatment center might've worked better for them over that treatment center. But if someone's truly ready to recover, if they're like, no, let's do this you can recover, you can recover anywhere. So I'd say, yeah, perhaps don't put too much weight in where you go for treatment, but just, just, just go, go Mm -hmm. being ready. Mm -hmm. I've got like two more things that I kind of want to talk to you about. One Mm -hmm. is, um, I know that you had, you, you mentioned when you were telling your story and through this interview that you were an elite athlete and that you had jobs in, um, like, moving your body related fields. So like outward bound and things like that. And I'm wondering how you reestablish like a healthy um, boundary with exercise after. Cause I I have clients too, that like, they're just active people and they love being active for so many reasons. And they're trying to now figure out this, like how, how can I be active and not be symptomatic? And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. For sure. Um, I think the thing I remember most clearly well, I remember lots of things, but um, so much of my eating disorder was spent doing stuff I didn't like to do. Like I became like when I retired from being a weightlifter, um, I picked up road cycling because in my head I thought, well, I have to do the same amount of exercise I was doing as a weightlifter so I don't gain weight. So I'll become a road cyclist. Now, I hate road cycling, um, but, but I did it, you know, in, in place of a car, I would like cycle to work and cycle to my friend's houses and whatever I was doing, I would cycle. Um, and my heart felt heavy. There was nothing about me that wanted to roll out of bed in the morning and put on my cycling gear and head out on my bike. But I did. So, I mean, for me, that was a clear indicator. But in my, in, in my eating disorder, it was like, well, I have to do that. And when I went to treatment, I remember the first, it was a Wednesday morning. And I remember that because the therapist that took the group did it on a Wednesday and we were talking about exercise and it came to me and it was my first week in treatment. And I said, you know, I said, I don't even know if I lack exercise. And the room, I remember the room kind of stopped and it was the first time that had ever come out of my mouth because my whole identity was around being an athlete, was around being the fit person, the person that loved to exercise, the person that would do the extreme kind of whatever's, you know, if, if there was a, an iron woman, like I was like, sign me up. 
Um, and yeah, that came out of my mouth and it kind of shocked me because I was like, it was a truth that I think I'd known deep down, but I'd never been willing to admit to myself. And so part of treatment at Montanito was they did incorporate exercise into treatment. So there were two 30 minute walks a week. They did circuit like in a gym twice a week and there was yoga. And it was really interesting because when I you know, reached enough stability that I was able to do the walks and yoga and the circuit, I did the walks. Um, I didn't like the yoga. So I just kind of sat in the corner and I wasn't into circuit. And eventually I said to the exercise person, I was like, can I just not do circuit? And she was like, sure. And so I think I was like the only, the only client that had ever requested not to do exercise. Um, and it was just because I was just done. By the time I went to treatment, I think my soul was tired of doing things it didn't want to do. And what that really taught me was that I didn't have to do exercise in order to maintain my weight. Like, and it blows my mind now to think of the number of hours I spent every day or every week doing exercise that I didn't need to do. And like, I think it really set me up well for when I fell off the cliff and injured my feet that I was able to literally just sit on my ass for like a year and not do much at all and be okay with it. Like, I still remember people were saying to me like, oh, you're going to have to watch what you eat now because you're not exercising as much. And I was like, excuse me? I'm like, I'm still eating my food. Like, is that an apple pie? Yes, please. Um, and I think that experience and treatment really set me up for it. Um, and so what I'd say to people is if you're out doing your thing, whatever that is, like if it's running, if it's swimming, whatever, and if there's a part of your soul that says, you know, I'm tired, then honor that because that's your healthy self speaking. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I remember just forcing myself to run and hating every mm-hmm. single second of it and hearing runners be like, but you, you move past this point and suddenly it's amazing and it's easy. I'm like, I have never gotten there. I hate every <laughs> step that I'm taking, but I forced myself to do it. And so now it's like, there's like, I read something online and my friends joke with me. Like, if you ever see me running, like call the police because there's somebody chasing me because you will never, ever see me running ever. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, for me, it was yoga. And for someone, it might be running. And for someone else, it's rock climbing. And if you love it, like that's that's the indicator. Like you said, if your heart's not heavy while you're doing it, then that's probably a good thing. And if your heart is heavy while you're doing it, it's like, what else can you do instead? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think too, like, it's so interesting because like as an athlete, like and being an athlete was all about like, push yourself, no pain, no gain. If, you know, if you haven't hurt something, then you haven't worked hard enough. And it's fascinating. Like, am I still a competitive person? Absolutely. Like if we're like playing like Scrabble or something, like people kind of get scared. They're like, who are you? Like you become <laughs> someone else. But like when it comes to physically doing something, like there's nothing in me that ever, ever wants to do <laughs> anything hard is what I wanted to say. But like I'm never do like I don't know a triathlon or something mm-hmm. because to me that's dishonoring my soul like it actually feels disrespectful to my body to push myself to do that whereas in the past I would feel like I was a more pure person in my eating disorder or as an athlete that was my goal was to push myself and so it's really interesting to separate like Christy the athlete Christy with the eating disorder and Christy is a recovered self like mm-hmm. maybe at one time I will want to do a triathlon but right now to me it feels like dishonoring my body to to do something that my soul doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love that because I think that one thing that I've learned or like I've, I've started to do so much more now being recovered is just like this idea of like actually checking in 
with myself mm-hmm. and being like, right now, this is not what I want to do. And I do it every day because I don't, I mean, I, I love yoga. Obviously I've said that 5 billion times on this podcast alone, but like every time I get on my yoga mat, it's like, there are certain poses that I can do and that I like doing, but every time I take a class, I'm like, do I actually want to do this right now? Is it going to serve me? And there's like some poses that like today, no, this is not true to me. And I'm just not going to do it today. And maybe I'll do it tomorrow. You know, um, this idea of honoring, honoring your body and like actually being like, not what does my ego want? Not just what does my eating disorder want? Not what does my mind want? But like, what does my body actually desire right now? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and um, it, it actually reminds me of one thing you were saying about like how you were you were restrictive, like even with money, like it, it, restricting and like eating disorder symptoms show up in ways not just related to food, you know. And so much of that is too just like how do you actually pause and and check in? And I think that like that that's true for money. That's true for sex drive. That's true for so many things. It's like what what does my body actually desire right now, and what am I forcing it to desire instead? Mm-hmm. And like, I think the funniest thing is like, I was known in my eating disorder for being like the most frugal person on the planet. Like if someone like, I don't know, owed me two cents or something like they'd know about it and I'd know about it and I would remember <laughs> it. Um, but I mean it, like I was like Miss Accountant, I was on it. And like these days I'm so much free with money and my life is so much more free because of it. Like mm-hmm. I'm not scared anymore. And it's just, there's a, I don't know. I just want to call it like a natural flow to it. And I can't describe it any other way than to say, when you heal your relationship with food, you'll heal your your relationship with money or with people or vice versa. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's all intertwined. Yeah. It's so true. Um, So the last thing I want to ask you is just a little bit more about your business. So it's called recovered living. You do eating Mm -hmm. disorder recovery coaching. I know you've got like some people that actually you have got employees that you also have hired as eating disorder recovery coaches. So talk a little bit about um, what recovered living is, what services you provide. Um, I know you mentioned a little bit about it, but just so that people that are listening, if they're like, I really am into Christy and I want to know more about what she does, maybe I want to hire her or, or look into her company, tell them a little bit more about it. For sure. Um, so essentially like recovered living is I hire coaches who are recovered themselves. So I always want people to work with someone who's recovered, who gets it. Um, and so I really thought about what's, what did I want in my recovery and what do I see that's missing in, I guess, the, the treatment model that's in America. And I think the thing that I saw that was missing was that piece when, when people transition out of PHP and drop to IOP maybe, or when they go from residential to home, or maybe they're, they're doing outpatient with a therapist and a dietitian, but it's just not enough. And so it's like when someone's getting traditional treatment, but it's but it's just not quite enough. It's like I created Recovered Living because I wanted that to really help fill in the gap. So Recovered Living essentially offers coaching. So that's like one-on-one or it can do big group coaching as well. And it's all online. So it's like through a HIPAA complaint platform and it's essentially a conversation. And so I've worked with people, like I had a client that came home from residential and she was like, I don't fit clothes in my wardrobe anymore. I need to get, get rid of some of my clothes, but uh it's hard and I was like cool so set your laptop up on your bed and show me your wardrobe and let's do this and she was like now and I'm like yeah like now like let's do this and so I really like to get practical as well Mm -hmm. and so it could be about like I've done grocery shopping with people like you know they put earbuds in their ears and we go grocery shopping and I'm like okay I know you're looking at the whatever right now and I know that looking at calories is a thing for you so I want you to commit to 
not choosing uh, whatever because of the calories, but choosing it because you want that one, you know? And so we actually do like practical coaching, grocery shopping, you know, clothes, or maybe we're just talking about life, you know, there's that option as well. Um, I also do at-home cooking, which I really love actually, because I never cooked until I went to treatment. So I was 27 years old and didn't even know how to cut an avocado um, and didn't know whether it lived in the fridge or in the cupboard. You know, I just didn't know this stuff. And so cooking for me is I used to cook online with my friends. You know, we'd both set up our laptops, we'd get together in the kitchen and we'd talk. I'd be in, in California, I'd be in New Zealand and we'd cook together and it was great. And I was like, ah, imagine like doing this with people in recovery. So that's totally an option. Like if people struggle with how to cook, if they struggle with binging and purging, if they struggle with they know they're not going to portion appropriately, then let's cook together and like have a fun experience doing it. Um, provide meal support as well. So, you know, I've got a client that I do breakfast sessions with a couple of times a week. And so for her, it means that she set up her day well. You know, she eats breakfast, I eat breakfast and it works. Um, and then the thing that's kind of my baby and close to my heart is doing doing what's called live-ins or transition assistance. And that's so when someone is transitioning, maybe they're moving out to school or maybe they've just come home from residential and sometimes it's a really big jump. It really is. And so I'll actually go um, and live in with people at their homes. And so that can be for as little as four days or it can be as long as, you know, four weeks, whatever you need. But we can do all that stuff together, like go and do the grocery shopping, go and figure out where your school is and that you're going to park here. You're not going to park six blocks away, you know, and just getting into that routine of doing recovery in your home so that when I leave, it's like, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm doing the same routine. And then once I leave, then you can continue with me online. So it's like, yes, I've left, but I'm still available. I'm still here. And I know you and I know, and I know your, your house and your routine. So let's stay in recovery. Um, so that's kind of a snapshot of, of how that works. And then what I offer to people as well is support for their family and friends. Because I think often what gets missed is the person with the eating disorder gets a lot of the support, but the family and friends are left kind of being like, ah, what do we say? What do we do? And so for anyone that's a client with recovered living, I offer a free support group once a month for the family and friends. It's online and it's, it's kind of cool. Like we've had people from all over the world come together. And I think for them, just being able to communicate with each other and, and hear each other's stories and their struggles um, has been really cool and be able to give them some support as well. Tell me a little bit about, um, so this is the first time I'm actually hearing about this support group for families. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have, like, if you could give them like a really, really short piece of advice for like the loved ones of someone who's struggling, um, like any advice you have for them? I mean, I know there's like yeah, a, lot, say- a lot of things you could say. but. I know, I'm like, <laughs> Um, I'm going to say a couple of things like one is like a tenant I got off a substance abuse website and they have three rules and um, it said you can't make someone want to recover and I think that alone is a massive concept you know and we often talk about that you can't make someone want to you can't do recovery for them and the third thing is you can't accept behavior that crosses your boundaries and so what I mean by that is say you are a family member and you have someone that has an eating disorder, if they're doing things that cross your boundaries, like it's, if it's upsetting the balance in the family, if they're stealing money from you so they can binge and purge, if they're starving themselves to death, like, and that's not okay with you, then it's okay not to accept that behavior. Like it really is. You don't have to, 
you don't have to accept behavior that you're not okay with. And I think that's really hard to separate. Like, yes, it's, it's a mental illness and it's okay to have boundaries. And I think that's really important. And it's, it's different for everybody what those boundaries are and navigating that can be difficult, but that's part of what the support group's for. Um, they would be my top of head thoughts. Yeah. And another thing that I would add, just that I know that I've told um, the loved ones of clients before is that like, it kind of goes along with boundaries, but in a different way is just like, if you're someone's partner, if you're someone's mother, like you're not expected to be their therapist and their nutritionist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing I tell my clients is like, tell your partners that like, you've actually hired people, like you are paying people to do those things. Yeah. I just, I remember like the people that I loved felt so overwhelmed feeling like they needed to help me. They were feeling like they were my therapist and then they had to make sure I was eating and they needed to do all of these things. And it's like, when I had a treatment team that my family really trusted, it made their lives really easier because all they needed to be was like my mother and my father and my best friend. They no longer needed to be all of these other things for my, in my life. So just like if your loved one has a treatment team, like trust that they're paying people that are experts and have studied this and have lived this to help them. You only have to be their support. You don't need to be anything else to them. And if they don't have a treatment team, like maybe that's where it's like, you know, that the help is like getting them a treatment team. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. So um, that's, that's all I have for you. Is there anything else that you feel like you, you need to say before you want to say before we, before we end the interview? No, I think I'm just trying to kind of rack my brain. I mean, I could talk all day, right. um, but no, I, I feel like you asked some really great questions and um, I just really appreciate the opportunity because I really firmly believe that anyone can recover and it's not about, it really isn't about how long you've had your eating disorder or how many times you've been to treatment or how bad it's been. It's about what you choose right now. And if you choose recovery, it's like every every decision you make, you either move one step closer to your eating disorder or one step closer to recovery. And so recovery really is a, a choice that you choose a hundred, a thousand times a day until suddenly it's not a choice anymore and it's just a way of being. Thank you so much for listening today. I find Christy's take on eating disorder recovery and her story to be both inspiring and refreshing. And I hope that you do too. Your homework today is to somehow dive deeper into the difference between existing and living. This can be done through journaling, writing poetry, music, drawing and art, movement, however speaks the most to you. Even if you feel like you don't really know what living means yet, what do you imagine it to mean? Who is someone that you think really exemplifies what living versus existing means? For more support, check out my website, alwaysabeing.com, or join my private Facebook group, Always a Being Eating Disorder Recovery Tribe. Also, keep tuning in to the Eating Disorder Recovery Speakers podcast for more interviews with people who are in recovery or who are recovered. As always, I want to hear from you. Email me at kristin at alwaysabeing.com if you are well into your recovery or if you are recovered to be interviewed on the podcast. Or send me your questions. What do you want to hear asked from someone in recovery? Or what can I answer for you? If this episode resonated with you, or if you think the concept of this podcast is a good one, please help other people find it more easily by rating it on iTunes, maybe leaving a comment or sharing it with other people who might also find it helpful.